As I've been praying for you, I felt like the Lord had such a divine appointment, and I don't say that lightly. I say that with the full intent of what it means, because I believe the Lord wanted me to begin with a word to prophesy over the house and what he's doing in this hour at this moment. If you call church 1132 your home church, this is for you. Now, what's really cool is this weekend, starting Friday night at sundown, going all the way through Sunday at sundown, it is in the Jewish calendar called Rosh Hashanah. Who's heard of Rosh Hashanah? So for those of you that haven't heard about it, it's actually a significant holiday in the Jewish calendar, in the Jewish culture. And although many of us may not adhere or live by the Jewish calendar, I think it's important for us to know the significant dates within the Jewish calendar because God goes by the Jewish calendar. So for us to understand the significance of this moment, Rosh Hashanah simply means the beginning of the new year. It's, a, it's called the head of the year. And so the Jewish new year, like you and I celebrate typically on the 31st of December, this is their version of, a, of the new year, but it's over a two-day period. But what's so significant about this time is that Rosh Hashanah actually means to be remembered. Another way they ter- the terminology used is God remembers you. And the word remember is not because God has forgotten anything, right? God forgets nothing. So it's not like a recollection of something that's been forgotten. It is a remembrance, meaning, and they use Genesis 21 and 22 often in the scriptural focus during Rosh Hashanah in the Jewish synagogues, in the Jewish culture. And the reason they do that is they're focusing on Sarah. Sarah, who dealt with infertility, and she found herself barren in a place where she longed to be fertile. It was in Rosh Hashanah that she had breakthrough. And that's for someone in the house in the natural where you have been infertile. I declare fertility over you. The Lord said that there is a fertileness that comes in Rosh Hashanah because it is the beginning. It is the conception of a new beginning and a new year. And so Sarah is the metaphorical example in scripture of what it is to be remembered by the Lord. She had been infertile. She'd been pleading for a child. She went to the Lord and the Lord said in Rosh Hashanah, Sarah, I remember you. I feel like that's significant for Church 1132. I come here this morning during Rosh Hashanah weekend, and I heard the Lord when I was on the flight from San Francisco, that's where we live, down to DFW. I heard the Lord say, tell them I remember them. And the Lord said that remembering is a repairing and a piecing together of seemingly broken promises. God brings together his kind intention with the fulfillment of long-awaited promises. I don't know about you, but that is so encouraging to me. And I think it's so important that God is visiting the barren places and bringing life where there was not once. The Lord then gave me a word for you as a house. Why? Because he remembers you. I wrote down some thoughts, and these are some, well, I shouldn't say thoughts. I wrote down the things I heard the Lord declaring and prophesying over you. I want to declare that over you. And when I prophesy, the cool thing about the prophetic, it comes with the atmosphere of heaven, and there's an agreement that takes place when we receive and we hear the word. The Lord said for you, Church 1132, this will be the year you will experience the kindness of the Lord. 
because he has remembered you. Just like Sarah, the barren places will become fertile. The lost hope will be restored. He has remembered what has been promised. He has remembered what has been prophesied over you. And he has seen what has been stolen and the assault of the enemy to take you and to go after to take you out and to go after your dreams that the Lord has put within you. The Lord says, watch him restore this year what the enemy has stolen and undermined. The Lord, the enemy, excuse me, thought that he had the final say, but the Lord says, I always do. I saw a picture of twisted, tangled string. And then I saw the Lord's hand and it had scissors. And the Lord cut the tangled, matted strings. And as he cut off the tangled places, the rest of the strings, they held, they fell straight. And I felt like that was a picture. And this is what the Lord said. The Lord said, I'm going to untwist the things that got twisted in the last season. I heard the Lord say, I'm going to make straight what has been misconstrued, misunderstood. I saw the Lord standing over you, not allowing the hits of the enemy to penetrate anymore. The Lord says, I am your defender. I am your refuge and I am your safe place. As a church, the Lord said he is going to mark you with his mercy and his goodness, supernatural provision. Don't lose hope, says the Lord. Where the enemy has torn things and ripped things apart, the Lord is binding up those things and he is bonding them in the spirit so they can never be torn again. The Lord says, I am putting around you a loyal, faithful community. And I kept hearing the Lord say, tell them that it's difficult as it was to go through the exposing season and discovering what was in your midst. The Lord allowed it so you could understand why he removed them. This is a building year, Church 1132, but one that is built through prayer and waiting on the Lord. And I heard the Lord say, it is imperative who you are listening to in this season. It is a hinge point time in history. This is not a year like any other year. Can we get an amen? Can I also get an amen that let's never repeat it in Jesus' name? And, and we all said, amen. All right. There's power in agreement, Lord. Okay. So we have to understand in uncertain times like we're in right now. It's called uncertainty creates a vulnerability with, within us. Isn't that true? When we are unsure, when we don't know what next month, next week, or even maybe tomorrow is going to look like, isn't it natural within our humanity to want to cling on to what's familiar? Often we are at the places where it is so uncertain, all we want is certainty. We crave certainty. Why? Because we feel more secure when things are certain, when things are predictable, when we know how things are going to turn out, we're like, okay, I know how to plan for that. I know how to navigate through what's familiar. What's been so difficult for so many people, including myself, is the uncertainty hasn't given me a plan. I, I, I lack the navigation tools to go through such uncertain times. And I have found myself almost feeling like I'm going down a blinded path, a path with a lot of fog. I grew up in Oregon, and the fog there is incredibly dense. You have very limited visibility. And the brighter the light, I know this sounds interesting, the brighter the light, the worse the fog is. 
you actually can't put on your full beams. You have to only use a singular light for any Northwesterners in the world. The, the dimmer the light, the better you can see. I know that sounds weird, but I heard the Lord say, the dimness feels like you can't see, but that light, that one true voice, the one presence of God, he says, you don't need a lot of stuff right now. All you need is the one true light to pierce through the fog. So that last statement in the prophetic word I released over this house was, this is the time to get on your face and wait on God. That's your one true light. That's the only thing that's going to pierce through the fog of this time. So much through scripture, we see people in uncertain times. We see people in unpredictable moments where we know how their story turns out. But can you imagine being the one having to live it out? So many times I read these stories and I'm like, oh my gosh, I would be freaking out. And they are. And God allows us to see their freak out because he wants us to know, just like he got them through the difficult, uncertain times, he also is going to get you and I through these difficult, uncertain times. But we have to stay focused on the one true light in the midst of the foggy, dense atmosphere we find ourselves in. The Lord wanted me to bring us to Ruth 1 this morning. I'm going to be reading out the New King James. The amazing media team's already got it up. Yeah, they do. I'm going to start in verse 1, and we're going to land in this portion of Scripture because I believe the Lord not only has a word for us, but also I believe some strategy for us that he wants to release this morning. It reads, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Imelech, the name of his wife was Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malion and Chilion of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Imelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah. The other was the name of Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malion and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Then Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, go back each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, wept out loud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people, Naomi. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait for them to grow up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept out loud again. And then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Little G. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where I go, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Hmm. This story is so rich with, I believe, what is happening at this exact hour. 
I believe we are the Ruth and the Orpah in this story. And with my time left with you, I want to zero in on these two women. Because like them, I think many of us are at a crossroad moment. These women have lost everything. And I know for some of us, we know that a, being a widow is incredibly vulnerable and the grief itself can feel like it's going to take you out. But at, a, at another layer, this is a time in history and culturally where women weren't allowed to work outside the home. So their entire livelihood was based on marriage. If they weren't married, if they didn't have a man be able to provide for them, they would literally have to rely on the benevolence, the compassion, and the generosity of friends and family. So not only when their husbands died was there the natural grief of the loss of dreams, the loss of family, and for Naomi, she lost her sons, but the, the hope and the thought of grandchildren, everything they had been planning for, everything they had been believing for, when all of the men died in the family, literally their, their livelihood died with it. Their dreams died with it. All three of these women found themselves in an incredibly vulnerable situation. Can you imagine how difficult it would be to make key life decisions at such a painful, tragic time? But you see, that's exactly what a crossroad moment is. Let me give you the definition. Definition of a crossroad is a crisis situation or point in time when critical decisions must be made. A crisis situation or a point in time when critical decisions must be made. I think you and I can agree our nation is at a crossroad moment. The church at large is at a crossroad moment. Many people that go, would identify as a Christian are in a crossroad moment even with their faith. There is so much fighting for people's narrative right now, for the loyalty, the affection of their heart right now. We are at a critical moment for so many of us. And what we don't understand, and we have to grab a hold of today, church, is that the decisions that we make at the crossroad moments of our life truly have never been more important than they are right now. We have to understand that the decisions we make in this hour, in this time of uncertainty, have never been more critical. Why? Because they have everything to do with your destiny and everything to do with your legacy. What can seem so minuscule, what can seem so unimportant, not that valuable at the time, it's just a decision. No, no, no. When you're at a crossroad moment... You're either choosing to move toward your destiny or away from your destiny. Toward your legacy or away from your legacy. And we see this in Ruth 1. See, these two women, they have the same crossroad moments, the same grief, the same loss, the same dreams they're grieving. And both women have to make a decision. But we see two women make two different decisions that lead to two very different legacies. See, the decision at this moment seems maybe simple enough to go with Naomi and go back to Bethlehem and go with the people of God or stay right where they're at in their hometown with their friends and family in Moab. For most people, when they're in the midst of grief, what do they naturally want to do? Surround themselves with friends, family, and community. There's nothing wrong with that except for if God told you to go somewhere else. And see, at this crossroad moment, both women were willing to go with Naomi. We just read it. They're like, no, no, we'll go. We'll go with you. We're here for it. 
And what does Naomi do? She turns to her daughter-in-laws and in her grief and in her own fear, because she doesn't even know if she's going to have anyone to take care of her. She has some land there, but there's no promise of a future. There's no promise of provision. And in her fear, in her own uncertainty, in her own grief, what does she say to her daughter-in-laws? She says, who am I to give you anything? I don't have a husband. I have no children. I have no sons. There's no promise of breakthrough. There's no promise of provision. There's no promise that you'll get anything going with me. If anything, you're choosing a really bad path by going with me. Because she believes the hand of the Lord has turned against her. Remember, she said, it is more bitter for me than you. Don't go with me. And the the daughter-in-laws are willing to go, but they hear the same narrative and they have two different responses that are very important for us to catch. What does Orpah do? She kisses her mother-in-law and she goes and she stays in Moab and she doesn't go with Naomi. But what does Ruth do? It says she clings to her mother-in-law. She says, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. What is so different about these two responses? Everything. Everything. Because here's Orpah and she is Kissing her mother-in-law. What does a kiss represent? A kiss represents intimacy, but it's fleeting. It's momentary. You lean in. You're like, okay, I'm here for, for a moment. I'll be in the front row singing the songs. I want the merch. I'll be at every conference. But when the times get tough, when the crossroad moments happen, you, st- you go back to what's familiar. See, Orpa had been, in a sense, delivered. Go with me here. From a place of false worship and idol worship, the Moabites were known actually for their sexual perversion, their false god worship. They did horrendous things, which I won't take time to explain. But culturally, as a culture, they were very anti-God. And then these two girls married Malon and Chilion, and they worshipped Yahweh. And they too were exposed to covenant. They were exposed to the people of God. So here they they left the Moabite false worship and they stepped into a place of worshiping the one true God. But in the crossroad moment, what did Orpah do? She kissed and she went back to what she'd been delivered from. Why? Because in the uncertainty, she allowed the fear and the narrative of Naomi to direct her steps back to what she'd been delivered from. If we are not careful, friends, in moments like this that we're in in history, we so long for certainty, we'll even go back to what's familiar even when it's dysfunctional, even when it hurts you, even when it's destructive. Don't go back to the vomit that the Lord delivered you from. But what did Ruth do? It says she clung. What does clinging mean? It, it, there's a desperation in clinging. There's, a, I'm all in, I'm not going anywhere. It's willing to get a little dirty. It's willing to not look pretty. It's like, I don't care what it costs me. When I married your son and I stepped into your family, and when I just declared a moment ago that your God is my God, that's my conversion moment, I'm all in. I'm choosing covenant, Naomi. And even though her and Orpah heard the same narrative, I love Ruth because she was unwavering. She didn't allow fear. Because isn't it amazing how fear can be logical? 
it can actually have a lot of reasoning. You hear someone's fear, and they've got a whole argument and a case built, justifying, insulating, protecting their fear. But what I love is Ruth had a deeper conviction that would not allow fear to sway her. In a culture that we live in right now that has such a sway, we have to find, friends, the plumb line of God in a culture that is fighting for what's truth. The word of God is our truth. His presence is our plumb line. And if we don't understand and if we have not been in the presence of God and in the word of God, we will be kissing Christians instead of clinging disciples. Friends, this is the moment in history we have to be a clinging disciple. We have to be willing to choose uncertainty in uncertain times. We have to be willing to be uncomfortable and forego the comfortable places. We have to be willing to deny what's familiar, even though that's what we long for. But recognizing God is wooing us over here. We have to be willing to pay the price to walk out what God is leading in this moment. But here's What's key, and we have to understand this, the narrative you are listening to right now is what will determine the decision you make in your crossroad moments. See, I think we have to understand that your choices at crossroad moments are contingent on what you're clinging to. And let me go as far to say this. Your legacy is determined if you're kissing or if you're clinging. This is a moment to cling. This is not a kissing moment. And there is a somberness I know in this word today. I bring it because I feel the Lord extending his hand to the church and saying, can you trust me even in the uncomfortable moments? Can you choose me even in the uncertain times? And I believe this room is full of Ruths that are going to cling to the things of God, even when it's uncertain and even when it's unfamiliar. See, what you cling to is what you come into. And because Ruth clung to, she was able to come into the fullness of God in her life. How do I know this? Because when you study out Ruth's life, it's incredible. So she goes to Bethlehem, and they have nothing. Their whole goal in going there as a widow is sheer survival. The dreams, the desires of her heart, the the desire for family, the desire for children, she's left that in Moab. All she's trying to do is stay in covenant with her mother-in-law and just get food on the table. She's just looking for basic necessity and provision. So she's out in the fields and she captures the eye of the most eligible bachelor in the land. He's like there in the fields giving her a rose and she's like, I will accept it. 
They ended up getting married. And not only was Boaz generous and godly, he loved Naomi. And so he took care of Ruth, but he also took care of the mother-in-law. So here, can you imagine Ruth and Naomi? They're like, yes, this is way better than we hoped for. Ruth, you caught the eye of the most eligible bachelor, and he's wealthy, and he's taking care of us? Yes, score. Well, here's what I love about God. When we are grateful for just the meal and the provision and the necessity, God's like, I'm not done yet. And church 1132, I feel like this is prophetic for all of you. Right when you're like, we're grateful just to be out of COVID or just to have this breakthrough. God's like, I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet. And what I love is she gets married. Ruth, this Moabite who was a foreigner, who wasn't a part of the culture, lands the most eligible bachelor in the culture. Go, Ruth. <laughs> and then they have a son. Remember that dream of family that she thought died in Moab? God's like, I'm not done yet. I'm going to make you a mother. Mother. Now I'm going to make you a grandmother because she had Obed. And Obed had Jesse. She's like, and God's like, I'm now going to make you a great grandmother. She's like, the blessings keep coming. And her great grandson was a young man by the name of David. You and I know him as King David. And then God's like, I'm not done yet. I'm going to put my own son in the lineage of David. And I'm going to graft you in. A widow, Moabite, foreigner, desolate. I've got nothing. And I'm going to graft you into the genealogy of Jesus with the thread of redemption and restoration woven throughout your story. Only God can write these stories. See, we're grateful for just the simple breakthrough, which is important. But God's like, I got a whole storyline. I'm not even close to being done, Church 1132. We're just getting started. We're just getting started. But when I thought about Ruth and I studied out her life, I wondered what happened to Orpah. What's the rest of her story? Not too much is mentioned else about her, but she pops up a couple other times in Scripture. And I discovered, to my surprise, that when Orpah went back to Moab. She married a man from the tribe of Gath. She had four sons. One of her sons' name is someone you and I know very well by the name of Goliath. When I realized that Ruth's great-grandson was King David and Orpah's youngest son was Goliath, I realized that in 1 Samuel 17, when we discover the battle between David and Goliath, it was actually the legacy of these two women 
colliding from a crossroad moment in Ruth 1. The moments and decisions we have in our lives that seem maybe insignificant or maybe very overwhelming. But those crossroad moments, one woman chose to stay in what's familiar, went back to the place that she'd once been delivered. And her legacy proved it because the Gath, the Gadites, were always known, ultimately Philistines, were ultimately known to always oppose the people of God. They were always considered the giants against the people of God. But King David, he was the seed and he was the legacy that finally, once and for all, defeated the giants in the enemy's camp. One crossroad moment, two women, two different decisions, two different legacies that collide. And who wins? God's people always win. God's people always win. Friends, we are at a Goliath moment in our nation. If you didn't know, now you know. What does that mean? Goliath is taunting, mocking, intimidating, harassing. You can read it. In the natural, he was all those things. He came out daily and tormented, harassed, mocked the people of God. And he was big he felt scary, but this ruddy little guy refusing to wear the wrong armor because it wasn't his identity, but he came out in true identity with five stones. And what did he do? He threw them and the stone struck Goliath's head, but it was with the sword that David cut off his head, Goliath's sword. But what's significant is how David came at Goliath. What did David say before he went after Goliath? He said, I come to you in the name of the Lord. Why is that significant? Because David understood covenant. Why did he understand covenant? Because it had been modeled in his family line, choosing God and choosing covenant. See, a generation models what has been made before them. So friends, you want a legacy that honors God? You gotta choose God now in the crossroad moments. You gotta choose in the hard places. You gotta choose in the crossroad moments. Not when it feels good, not when it's easy, but it's like, God, I choose you. I don't care what it takes. I don't care what it sounds like. I'm clinging to you. I'm choosing you.